I wonder, have you ever faced up to having to do something and then thought, where on earth do I begin? How do I start? You know, it's, it doesn't have to be something that's uh, hugely of earth-shattering importance. It might be just a bunch of wires that get all mixed up and, and tangled, and you think, How do, where do I start? How do I begin to sort this out? Or maybe it'd been a you had a large number of the family around at the house for, for, for a meal, and after they've all gone away, you go into the kitchen, and you look at everything spread, and you think, where on earth do I begin? Or maybe we can imagine how that feeling must be for maybe the first folks in the emergency services who turn up and arrive when there's been a major incident. Where, where first, where do I begin? Or the rescuers looking through a pile of rubble after an earthquake. Where, where do we start trying to find folks? Or again, the chief executive of a, of a new business that's been in, in serious trouble wanting to do this turnaround, to reduce the overheads, increase the profits, or rather reduce the losses and try and work towards a profit. Where does it begin? And, and then even as has sadly been the case, maybe a new chief executive of um, a voluntary organization who's come in and after years, we've just been discovered that there's been years of systematic abuse and, and fraud. How do we start to turn all of that around to change the culture? And then Jesus, Jesus, as he begins his ministry, where on earth to begin? Having been baptized in the, in the Jordan River by John, he's about to begin his public ministry, and he's now charged to be an agent bringing in the kingdom of God. He's to bring good news, a gospel to a hurting world. He's to establish a rule of grace amongst the, the rat race of the world. He's to usher in a kingdom of new life into this suffering, hurting, dying world. Where on earth does he begin? Well, the very same Holy Spirit who was seen descending on Jesus at his baptism, chapter 3, and look at verse 22, that very same Spirit, verse 1 of chapter 4, takes Jesus out of the public eye and into the wilderness. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Well, it's hardly a right, let's roll our sleeves up and get stuck in kind of beginning, is it? Israel had gone through the waters of the Red Sea when it was escaping from Egypt and its slavery there, and then spent 40 years in the wilderness before it went into the Promised Land. And, and these events mark and identified Israel very much as to who they were and what kind of people they were to be in the Promised Land. And now, years later, Jesus goes through the waters of baptism, and then 40 days in the wilderness. And it's very much about what kind of a Messiah is He going to be? What kind of a Savior is He going to be? Where is and how is He to begin? And the point's being made that He's not at all just some kind of Superman figure. He's not somebody who seems to be like us, but in fact is very different and is about to use incredible powers to sort things out, um, well, at least until the next episode. No, Jesus really truly was one of us, one with us. And in fact, in between the, the baptism of Jesus um, and the beginning of this story of the temptations in chapter 4, there comes that long family history of Jesus that Luke gives us in the second half of chapter 3. 
There's the family tree. There's the context. He really is one of us. He's part of this human story, part of the human condition. And because he's part of the human story, because he's part of the human condition, Jesus was able to be tempted. And that's what we read of in these verses that Jim read for us a short time ago. Now, the temptations in Luke 4 are not just the three instances that we read about in verses 3 to 12, because in the second verse, we're told for 40 days Jesus was tempted by the devil. The temptations went on throughout these 40 days, and here was a true and real struggle, a sorting out from the many different options and alternatives about what kind of Messiah Jesus was going to be because there had been quite a few of them, actually, at this time. There had been quite a few people had emerged who declared themselves the promised king for Israel and who were going to to bring freedom, and and mostly they had come to a quick end due to Roman or Herodian soldiers. But Jesus wasn't going to be like that. And these three temptations recorded in this chapter go a long, long way to answering the question about what kind of Messiah Jesus was going to be. They go a long way to answering about where he should begin and how he was going to set out on being a redeemer, not just for Israel, but a saviour of the world. Now, in verses 3 to 4, we have the first temptation as the devil tries to tempt Jesus to turn stones into bread. And there's a reminder to us that temptations don't always pick on bad things within us. There's nothing wrong with being hungry. It's not wrong to be hungry. It's not evil to to be hungry. Temptations don't always pick up on something nasty and, and not nice about us. Here, what was at stake was the challenge about being God's son. If you are the son of God, verse 3, if, Jesus, are you really the son of God? Seriously, here you are out in the wilderness without so much as a bagel. Come on, how can you possibly be the Son of God? There are echoes here of Satan's whisper in in Eve's ear in the Garden of Eden. God has said, what? Surely he should be treating you with a bit more respect. It's a challenge about trusting God. It's a challenge about whether or not our physical needs and wants are more important or less important than our loyalty to God. The second one, verses 5 to 8, was a temptation to have all the kingdoms, but to worship the devil first. And here the devil is offering offering Jesus a a shorter, a, a faster route. Never mind all this suffering stuff. Never mind waiting to see if you're able to fashion a community of disciples from very unpromising material. Never mind with all this being misunderstood and deceived and contradicted and betrayed and crucified and all that. I can sort all of this out for you, Jesus, without any of that bother. And it's a temptation to ignore principles, to suppose that the end justifies the means. But Jesus' baptism had committed Jesus to a way that meant standing with sinners, identifying with sinners, identifying with the lost humanity that he came to save. It was a way of love that was going to be shown through service and sacrifice. And so the first temptation about stones into bread was suggesting that there's no need to wait for God to do something. Do it now. 
And the second temptation is suggesting there's no need to follow God's program or pattern of suffering and then glory. Take a shortcut. We might be tempted sometimes to do the same, to look for the shortcuts rather than the the long road of obedience, the road that might seem difficult to us and, and for us. But it's a pattern about suffering and glory. Paul in in Romans chapter 8 says, now if we are children of God, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in His sufferings in order that we also may share in His glory. Here is a God-given pattern of sacrifice, of suffering love. And then the third temptation was about jumping off the temple. And it was going to be a, a recurring demand in Jesus' life that people were going to ask him to show off. Go do a trick for us, Jesus. In Matthew 13, we're told that some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. Notice they're not saying we're in trouble and we need this sorted out. We're not saying here is somebody um, with leprosy, heal them. We're saying, Oh, we just want to see a miraculous sign. You want us to believe? Well, show us something impressive. And that kind of thing, as I say, stayed with Jesus. Even when he was on the cross, people passing by saying, let him come down from the cross and then we'll believe in him. And the challenge in this third temptation was about certainty. Could Jesus really be sure that amongst all the hardship, the suffering, could Jesus be sure that as he was going around and getting a slow response from not very bright disciples, Could Jesus be sure he was was being undermined by the religious leadership and so on? Could he really be sure that the Father was with him? Maybe your faith, Jesus, needs a wee bit of encouragement. So, you know, jump off the temple and see if God gets you. Maybe you can't trust God as much as you think. So, why don't you try that and see if you can get some reassurance? But the thing is, Faith doesn't ask for dramatic evidence. Genuine faith doesn't need gimmicks or tricks to shore itself up. It's a lack of faith, a lack of trust, a lack of love to want someone to show you by some non-essential performance that they really care. So each of these three temptations that are highlighted in these verses are a temptation to go down a wrong road to the kingdom. They are false routes for the Messiah to take. They have their appeal, of course. Well, they wouldn't be temptations if they didn't have an appeal. You only tempt someone if you are offering something that's attractive to them. If you want me to do something that I I shouldn't do and I'm reluctant to do, you're not going to tempt me by saying, Gordon, do this and I'll give you some a ticket to go to the ballet performance next week won't tempt me at all. I'm not really tempted when I should be working to watch the television instead if watching the television means uh, watching an opera being broadcast. Uh, There's nothing evil about ballet or opera. I'm not interested, not the least bit concerned. No temptation whatsoever. No, it's a temptation only when something appeals to us. But here is an attractive option being made for Jesus. You're hungry, have something to eat. You're maybe not so sure about 
this road that you're going down, well, here's a shortcut. You're maybe not sure that you can be sustained through all of this. Well, let's test it out by having you jump off the temple. But each of them would take Jesus away from the path that the Father was calling him to follow. Each of them would have been such a bad beginning that they would actually rule out Jesus as the Messiah who was going to bring in a kingdom of love. Now, Jesus resisting and Jesus overcoming these temptations wasn't because He's the Son of God and so He's bound to win. This isn't like an episode of Superman where we know that, well, because He's Superman, it's going to be all right. Jesus was truly one of us, one with us. And His humanity meant that He could truly suffer and that truly He could be tempted. No, it was Jesus following the lead of the ministry of the Holy Spirit that enabled him to resist. It was the Spirit who came upon him in his baptism, chapter 3, verse 22. It was the Spirit, chapter 4, verse 1, who led him out into the wilderness. And it was the Spirit who was with him as Jesus resisted these temptations. And that's good news for us. Because after His death and resurrection, Jesus gifted that very same Holy Spirit to and on His people. Again, from Romans 8, Paul says, And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. You have the Spirit. There's life you will be able to overcome. God gives us all that we need to begin and to continue in the right way. God gives us all we need with the gift of the Spirit and also His Word, the Scriptures, which Jesus used three times. And I want to say a wee bit more about that. Well, then, three times in the wilderness, Jesus was tempted. Three times Satan tried to get Him to go down a wrong road to the kingdom. And three times Jesus resisted as he quoted Scripture. And the Scriptures that he quoted, well, two of them are from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and one's from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Um, not that there were chapters and verses in Deuteronomy in, in Jesus' time, but they're from the same area, the same part of the Deuteronomy. And I suppose then it's quite likely that that's what Jesus had been reflecting on while he was out in the wilderness. So maybe you're wondering, did Jesus take a copy of the Old Testament into the wilderness with him? No, he didn't. So maybe you're thinking, ah, well, Jesus was the Son of God, and because Jesus was the Son of God, he obviously knew everything that was written in the Bible. Well, that's not it either. You see, earlier in Deuteronomy cha chapter 6, we have these words. Moses, speaking to the people, says, These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hand and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. That is, people were to be immersed in the Word of God. 
And Jesus, as any other Jewish boy, would have learned them in exactly the same way, going over the Scriptures time and again, paying attention, taking in what God was saying to the people in His Word, talking about them, discussing them. That's how He knew them. And that's how He had what He had so that He could resist Satan's temptation. That's how He knew what kind of Messiah He was supposed to be. And again, that is good news. Just as I was saying earlier, it's the same Holy Spirit who we have to lead us and guide us. We also have the Word of God available to us. And we don't need to be the Messiah to read, the, to read it, to take it in and be guided by it. There are not just lots of copies of the Bible available these days, but there are a whole lot of ways of getting help in reading the Bible notes and, and guidance and so on. Many of them in print, a number, many of them nowadays online. And um, if you want to have a pointer or two to something that you might use that would help you to be reading the Bible in a, in a regular way as, and taking it in and feeding on it just as Jesus did, then, then do please get in touch and we can point you to some. Because we all need help and guidance, don't we, for reading the Scriptures. Did, did you notice in the, in the reading in Luke chapter 4, the devil quoted the Bible verses 10 and 11. The Bible doesn't work by magic. You don't just say the words and, and the devil was using the Bible. He knew it, but he'd got it wrong. But how did Jesus know that he'd got it wrong? How did Jesus know that his interpretation was right and that the devil's was wrong? Because Jesus knew the Scriptures. He was brought up taking them in, reading them, talking about them. We don't really have any excuses, do we? This series is about putting on habits. It's about getting habits that regularly nurture and feed the life of God in us. It's about finding a way, a rhythm in our lives that makes space for growing in our walk with God. And that includes a way for regular, careful, and prayerful reading of Scripture. Jesus needed to do that. And we've just been looking and, and look forward at how that stood him in good stead. And we should do that too. What stops us? Well, a couple of things, I suppose. One is we maybe just don't get round to it because of distractions. They lie on the table side by side, the Holy Bible and the TV guide. One is well-worn and cherished with pride. Not the Bible, but the TV guide. One is used daily to help folks decide. No, not the Bible, the TV guide. As the pages are turned, what shall they see? What does it matter? Just turn on the TV. So they open the book in which they confide. No, not the Bible, but the TV guide. So back on the table, side by side, is the Holy Bible and the TV guide. No time for prayer, no time for the Word. The plan of salvation is seldom heard. But forgiveness of sin, so full and so free, is found in the Bible, not in TV. We could make more time, couldn't we? But the other reason, so often I think, is that it, it simply 
we haven't got a hold of, of what the Scripture is and what the Scripture does. Let me read from the introduction of uh, this book, Bible Matters, by, by Tim Chester. In the introduction, he says this, Let me tell you about an amazing experience I had just this morning. Actually, amazing doesn't do it justice. It was out of this world. This morning, God spoke to me. I know that sounds weird, but I'm sure that's what happened. The living God actually spoke to me. I could hear what he was saying just as clearly as you can understand what you're reading, what you're hearing now. What I did this morning was read my Bible. Uh, at this point, you might be feeling like I've just pulled a fast one on you, unless, of course, you saw it coming a mile off. You were hoping for a dramatic story, and what you got instead was daily Bible reading. Boring. It says, my number one aim for this book is this. I want you to realize that every time you read the Bible, you're hearing the voice of God. Just as surely, more surely, than if you have some kind of dramatic experience. Re reading the Bible is a dramatic, spirit-filled experience. The God who spoke and brought the universe into existence speaks to you. The God whose voice thundered from Mount Sinai speaks to you. The God in Christ whose words healed the sick speaks to you. The central premise of this book is that the Bible is an intentional book. God gave it to us with a purpose in mind, and that purpose is to enter into live in a relationship, God with His people. And so the Bible is also a relational book, and as we read it, we don't merely learn information about God, although that's true. We hear God's voice and encounter His presence. Now, if we believe that, would we not lay aside the TV guide and read the Bible more eagerly? He says it's intentional and it's relational. What does he mean? Well, I suppose for intentional, I mean, think about these two statements. I could say um, Sidney Devine died last week, and that's true. But that doesn't carry any intention with it. I'm not necessarily expecting any kind of response from someone when I say that. Alternatively, if someone was buying something in a shop and it cost 85 pence and they were getting rid of a lot of small change and they handed over the small change and the shopkeeper went through it and said, that's only 70 pence, the shopkeeper's not giving you just information. The shopkeeper's wanting a response. They're wanting another 15 pence coming in their direction. The Bible's not just, here's some information for you. It's looking for a response about how to live, how to follow God, how to enjoy Him more. And it's relational. Imagine the scenario of a, of a mother whose daughter is unwell and daughter has to be on a dialysis machine. You might ask the mother, are you really fond of that machine? And she'll say, I love that machine. Not because she's enamored with its, the way it works or anything, but because that machine is keeping her precious daughter alive. In a similar way, we don't worship the Bible for its own sake, but we say we, we, we should love the Bible because it, it, it leads us to the God who is alive. 
and brings to us the God who is alive. So both for the intent and both for that relationship with God, lay aside the things that distract. Test out at what Chester was saying in that introduction about the living God speaking to us through the Spirit, making the Word come alive, and find ways of doing that as a habit regularly so that we are built up in the Scriptures, just as Jesus Himself had to do, that like Jesus, we might be able to go and tread on the right path of the kingdom of God. Let us pray. Lord, we thank You that You haven't left us to guess what You're like. We have, you haven't left us to, to work out with extremely difficult calculations who You are and what You want, but You've come to us and come to us in Jesus as one of us, and You've come to us in the Scriptures that bring to us the life of Jesus and bring to us Your life. Forgive us for the times when we've treated Your Word cursorily, when we've not opened the Bible. Forgive us for the times when we've just read it by skimming over it and not thinking about it. Help us to read and digest. Help us to read and take in what You're saying. Help us to read carefully and prayerfully, and help us to read and feed on Your Word regularly that we might be built up as the Lord Jesus Himself was built up. And we ask that in His name. Amen.